begin. Welcome to Mass Ave. We're here bringing you conservative insights from the steps of Capitol Hill. Tommy, it's been a while. It has, but uh, it's well, it's been it's been two weeks. Yeah. We're, we're glad you all are back with us. We're we're happy to be back here uh, at the microphone recording this podcast, bringing to you the most interesting perspectives from inside the Heritage Foundation um, that we can find, which is not uh, which is not a hard task here at the Heritage Foundation. We're we are um, chock full of, of interesting experts, but um, have got a, a, a really interesting episode uh, for you in store today. Yeah, we're going to be looking at Trump's foreign policy, and we're going to be tying that into uh, Vice President Pence. He's going to be traveling abroad as well. So I guess we got a lot of ground to cover. Yeah, you know, last week was um, six months of the Trump presidency. Uh, you know, we did the 100 days uh, big um, milestone, and then I think it was Thursday was the six month milestone, and and that's important. But President Trump has had, um, I would say, a very substantial and very successful impact on um, our foreign policy here in the United States of America. Very well received abroad so far. Yeah. Um, we'll, we'll get into some of this with with Luke, but. Uh, uh, this is definitely a bright spot of his presidency, one that um, I'm excited to talk about, to dive into. Uh, y- you never know where this could lead. Yeah. So before we dive into the bright spot, I figured I should ask you a little bit about what's going on in Congress right now. Oh, well, it's, it is it is that time where we're having the, the very exciting run-up to August recess. Mm-hmm. Um, in the Senate, there are three more weeks to August recess, but in the House, there's only one more week to August recess. So this is the time where they're trying to put points on the board. They're trying to do some uh, some things that, that they might want to brag about during August recess when they're back home with their constituents. And, and, and they're trying to um, to answer the tough questions. You know, the, the, the Senate is trying to get Obamacare repealed. Mm-hmm. Um, they, they, they really don't want to go home to August recess before that gets done. So much so that actually, as we talked about, uh, Leader McConnell added two weeks uh, to the Senate schedule to get this done. So um, on the Senate side, it's basically it's Obamacare repeal. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I would be a fool to try to predict how that's going to go this week. But Leader McConnell has been clear. We're going to see a motion to proceed uh, vote, um, which, you know, that that's going to happen on Tuesday. I don't know whether that will be successful or not. Um, it, it's kind of a coin flip. It's, it's very, very close right now. And then um, the options for the Senate after that are, are – uh, or many. They could they could go to the 2015 bill. We'll probably see a vote on that. Uh, they could go to uh, the draft of an Obamacare repeal and replace bill called the Better Care Reconciliation Act that they've been working on for the better part of a month now. Um, they could go to that. And then uh, to be very clear, this reconciliation process involves a votorama. That's one of my favorite Washington Votorama. Words. Votorama, which means there are unlimited amendments that any senator can offer. Uh, they'll all be on a 50-vote threshold. Those that are relevant and germane to the bill will be a 50-vote threshold, and they can offer as many as they want. And this goes into the night, doesn't it? It goes into the night and maybe into the morning and into the next night and into the next morning. I think with so much at stake, we're likely to see that day and night cycle repeat itself for quite some time. Uh, and we're going to have some late-night votes in the House as well. They're considering um, appropriations bill that's roughly 60% of discretionary spending. So it's a, it's a huge tranche of federal spending. It includes $1.6 billion for President Trump's border wall. Okay. Um, but uh, it, it's the entire Department of Defense, energy and water, military construction, the VA. Um, and so uh, 
we're likely to see hundreds of amendments uh, at, at, at least filed on that bill. So exciting times uh, on the House side as well. When they're done with that, they're going to recess. So just to just to wrap up this little section on Congress, <laughs> it's going to be a very exciting week. Um, the future of Obamacare repeal uh, is is here, and we're going to find out what what happens there. Uh, and the House is going to take a pretty significant step forward for for President Trump's agenda. Um, and certainly the FY18 uh, budgeting process, which, as we know, must conclude by September 30th, or we're in a uh, a government quote unquote shutdown situation. So that's sort of that's what makes that exciting. All right. Well, that is a very interesting lay of the land. I guess now we need to go back to foreign policy. We are very fortunate to have with us um, Heritage Director of the Douglas and Sarah Allison Center for Foreign Policy, uh, Luke Coffey, an, an expert in his own right uh, with um, a, a really great perspective on President Trump's foreign policy. Uh, Luke Coffey, thanks for joining us. Luke, tell us a, a little bit about your experience first. Um, you spent some time in the UK. Tell us about that. Yeah, thanks, Tommy, for having me on. Um, I joined Heritage in 2012, and before that, I worked five years in, in the UK as a defense policy advisor to their conservative party over there. So, um, and before that, um, so I spent some time in the US military. So, I have quite a bit of time uh, overseas under my belt, but it's, it's good to be back in the US and back at Heritage. Well, here on the show, uh, our sort of mission in life is to bring out there's so much. Our feeling is that there is so many interesting people here at the Heritage Foundation, so many interesting perspectives. Uh, You know, our expertise um, in in these areas is is sort of through the roof. And so what we like to do is is, is profile individuals and get to what's really interesting that they're working on. Um, And and obviously, President Trump is really interesting. Uh, (laughs) He's driving ratings on cable news. Uh, His Twitter feed is is must-see internet. I don't know if that's a thing, must-see internet. Well, yeah, well, before coming to this this podcast interview, I had to check Twitter to make sure he didn't say anything about foreign policy that he he probably shouldn't have. Oh, you you have to check his Twitter feed before any meeting here (laughs) in Washington, or or you could be 30 minutes behind, and, and that would be a disaster. Um, but anyways, uh, he's had a pretty uh, pretty big impact on foreign policy. What would you say are the highlights? Yeah, well, for sure. Um, you know, in all honesty, uh, Donald Trump came in with low expectations on foreign policy. Um, everyone was hyper-analyzing everything he tweeted or said on the campaign trail. Um, there was no context for what he would normally say on the campaign trail. If you think of his opponent, Hillary Clinton, had 30 or 40 years of public service in which he could apply some context to things that she said. Donald Trump didn't have any of that. So when he said something about NATO, um, everyone was trying to figure out, well, what does this actually mean? But there was nothing in his past that he really said about NATO, so nobody really had a clue. So whatever he said became everything to everyone. You know, whatever suited the um, the narrative of the day for that individual person, that became what Trump actually meant when he said something about foreign policy. So we've now seen a president who, um, during the campaign, um, criticized NATO and is now, you know, firmly committed to NATO. He went to Warsaw, Poland, and gave a fantastic speech about European security and about NATO and the the need to defend the values of the West. And we've had a we had a you know we have a president who on the campaign trail suggested that um, you know the U.S. doesn't need to stay involved in, in European issues, and we now have a president who is committed 
um, more funding than even his predecessor to something called the European Reassurance Initiative, which is this program to help Europeans defend themselves against the Russian threat. Mm -hmm. So we've seen a complete change from the rhetoric of the campaign trail to actually what he's doing as president. And many of these changes have been for the welcome. And so... You've mentioned Russia. Russian aggression continues to be an international worry, particularly in Ukraine. I know you've written extensively about what's going on in Ukraine. How do you think, what actions has Trump taken to hold them accountable? And what do you see as maybe some some more steps he could take? Well, when a lot of people were suggesting that Trump was going to get rid of economic sanctions against Russia, he's made firmly committed to them and, in fact, has actually increased sanctions against Russia over their activities in Ukraine. Um I have been told on very good authority that the the meeting he had with Ukrainian President Poroshenko could not have gone better, that the the president of Ukraine left that meeting more confident than ever before that the U.S. was firmly behind Ukraine in this conflict. And I think uh, overall, um, whereas previous presidents took a really long time to finally figure out, and I'm talking Bush 43, Mm -hmm. President Obama, they took a really long time to figure out that As long as President Putin is in power, Russia cannot be a partner for the United States. I think Trump's actually figured this out very quickly. So I think this is is very welcome, and I think that we're starting to see some some good signs um, coming from this administration when it comes to Europe. I know we keep focusing on Europe, but um, all the right people have been picked for the positions. Tillerson is great on Europe. Mattis is great. McMaster is great. At the next level down, um, the, 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 the person who was just picked as the um, as Assistant Secretary for Europe in the State Department just nominated as the uh, in this position. Wes Mitchell, great guy, sound on Russia, has a long track record of uh, dealing with uh, European and NATO issues. So we're heading in the right direction, without a doubt. So... Uh- while we're on Europe, and I, I definitely want to get to some of the other threats around the globe that certainly um, are on our minds, but while, while we're on Europe, let's talk about the speech in, in, in Warsaw. Uh, superlative reaction to that speech. Uh, what was your reaction, uh, and, and why do you think the reaction was so positive uh, within the sort of talking head sphere? Well, it was important. Firstly, it was important that he went to, to Poland because it, it was a way as re, it was it was his way of rewarding a European country that is pulling its weight. Poland has sent troops to Iraq. They sent troops to Afghanistan. They're one of the one of five countries inside NATO that meet the minimum NATO spending requirement for defense. And they're a, what we call in, in in the business they're a frontline state. They share a land border with Russia. Um, in Poland's case, it's with this bit of Russia called Kaliningrad that's heavily militarized, about 30,000 or so Russian troops in a piece of territory that's very small, maybe perhaps the size of, you know, I don't know, Connecticut and Rhode Island together. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was important that he went to Warsaw to deliver this very important speech about his commitment to transatlantic security, his commitment to the West, um, and making a firm commitment to NATO's collective security guarantee, because there were many people who were saying he's not, you know, he's not going to you know, back our European partners. He's not going to, um, you know, stand up against Russia. And he's he's done the exact opposite. I mean, unless you do not speak English, you cannot deny that he didn't fully commit to, you know, NATO during this speech. But many people are still trying to find ways, um, as Trump would probably say on Twitter, the haters are still <laughs> trying to find ways to, you know, um, misinterpret what he's, what he's been saying. And But more importantly, what he's been doing. And 
And his actions speak a lot louder in words. And the U.S. is fully committed to being a regional leader in Europe. And I also want to touch briefly, I know Vice President Pence is going to be departing for the Balkans. Um, what is the significance of that trip? Why the Balkans? Yeah, well, actually, he's he's going to three regions. Right. Um, uh, the Balkans is one. Um, the Baltics is the other. And then the, the South Caucasus, uh, George, the Republic of Georgia okay. is, is the third. And these countries, um, it's no coincidence that uh, he picked these countries. There are specific reasons for each one. And if you look at what's happening in the Balkans, he's he's going to Montenegro. Montenegro is the newest member of of NATO. Um, it's you know there's there's really no greater tool um, of promoting democracy, uh, reforming one's economy, the rule of law, um, their military uh, structures than NATO. I mean, people countries want to join NATO, and to join NATO, they have to meet a certain standard, so they reform. Their, their governments, their economies, their militaries in order to meet this high standard. And Montenegro is the latest example of this. It's also the latest example of Russian meddling. Um, right before Montenegro um, finished the process to join NATO, um, we now know that Russia tried staging a, a, a coup against the, the leadership there <laughs> to overthrow them with a pro-Russian um, le, you know, pro-Russian government. And, and the Balkans is an issue that is the convergence of many issues and challenges America faces. You have a piece of Europe that's still fragmented. Um, s- s- democracy and the rule of law is still an issue in the Balkans. You have a, a region where um, Russia is trying to get more and more involved uh, in the region, undermining U.S. interests. You have a, a you know, a, you have a, a region where Islamic fundamentalism is on the rise. The region is used as a recruiting ground for ISIS, um, as a transit ground for ISIS to get weapons and people in and out of Europe. And also the Balkans is a part of the world, a part of Europe, that the, the American family and the American taxpayer has already sacrificed a lot of blood and treasure in. Um, throughout the 90s, we had various peacekeeping missions there to bring stability to the region, to bring this region into the, the community of, you know, uh, into the Euro-Atlantic community and to the West. And we've done largely a very good job a- at that. So it's very important that we sort of, you know, keep our investment that we already have there. In terms of the, the Baltics and, and Georgia in the South Caucasus, uh, he's visiting Estonia, which is a fantastic country. Um, it's the birthplace of Skype. Uh, <laughs> many don't know this. You go there, it's like free high-speed Wi-Fi everywhere. I mean, the, the country's wired. Um, they're the first ones to invent something called uh, uh, e-citizenship. An e-re- I'm actually an e-resident of Estonia myself. Oh, really? Uh, I'm not sure what it actually means in practice. I did it mainly out of, uh, out of loyalty and, and symbolism uh, <laughs> out to you know show that my support for Estonia. Um, but uh, they also spend the required amounts um, that NATO outlines for defense. Um, so we're seeing the senior levels, senior members of the administration visit countries for a reason. This is what we're starting to see is a, a thought out foreign policy. It's We're starting to see a strategy being developed. This isn't just kind of like the, um, you know, I felt like under Obama, there was no really no method to it. Obama wanted to lead from behind. He didn't really want to get involved in these sort of issues. And uh, I think um, the Trump administration realizes that American leadership is important, and we're now starting to see that. So um, 
We're global. We're global power. Um, and, and one of the ways that we think about the world is in terms of threats to, to our security, but also to global security. You know, there's, there's really five threats that we've put our finger on most often. Russia, China, Iran, North Korea, and then Islamic terrorism. Uh, radical Islamic terrorism. In terms of all five of those threats, is there a um, cohesive theme that President Trump is employing here? Uh, has, has he has his focus been drawn mainly to Russia? You know, obviously, uh, it, it's at the very least split between Russia and North Korea, given the developments that we've talked about on this show in the last few episodes. But talk us through sort of how to think about President Trump's approach generally to a, to a world that seems like a pretty scary place. Yeah, well, I mean, it is a scary place. There are many challenges and threats. You know, the five you outline would probably be within my top five. Each of these challenges pose a different, um, you know, a different set of threats to the United States. Uh, you know, Iran is a, is, a, is a threat that I think is going to within, you know, our generation be perhaps the, the single largest threat to the United States. Right now, the, um, the, the biggest threat, the, most, the, the, the only existential threat is, is Russia. But the, perhaps the, the, the most common threat or recurring threat comes from the Islamist extremism that you, that you mentioned. Um, you know, only one country in the world I'm not saying that they have the intent to, but only one country in the world actually possesses the possesses the capability to enter a way of life, and that's Russia. Um, but uh, a group like ISIS or Al Qaeda can definitely disrupt our way of life, and which will have huge economic and social implications, as as we've already seen. So we have to be able to you know walk and chew gum at the same time here, and you know we're a, we're a global power with global interests. We need to have um, the military with the tools required to keep um, Americans safe, America's interests safe and uh, the interests of our allies and the security of our allies safe. You know, we don't need to be everywhere in the world doing everything, but we do need to live up to our commitment of keeping Americans safe and and those of our allies who we have a treaty with safe as well. So I think we're starting to see, um, you know, the administration slowly develop its strategy on these different issues. And we have in the coming few months, we're going to have, you know, more details on the Russia strategy, more details on North Korea, on Iran and the Middle East. Um, we're already seeing um, big moves in, in Syria and Iraq with ISIS. Um, the, the amount of land and territory they're holding is really diminishing um, as we speak. The de facto capital, so-called capital of ISIS in, in, in al-Raqqa in Syria is um, under siege right now by U.S.-backed forces. So um, I, I, it's going to be interesting to see where we are this time next year. I think we'll have an even better idea on where Trump is going with these issues. Uh, often I hear from some of my European colleagues, they say, oh, it's in disarray. No one knows what's going on with the administration. It's in chaos. And I say, look at your countries. Uh, you, you guys will have an election, and it takes like four or five months to find agreement among different political parties to form a coalitional government. So, you know, any new administration of, of, from any country is going to have a challenge on, you know, finding their feet, on developing their strategies. So, so far, I think uh, the Trump administration overall on foreign policy is heading in the right direction. Seems like a great place to leave the conversation. Thanks so much for joining us, Luke. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks, Bye. Luke. Um, by the way, uh, as we discussed at, at the top of the show, uh, Luke's an active t uh, tweeter. You can find him at Luke D. Coffee. Uh, 
you know, that D lets me know that his middle name isn't Warm, as I've often thought his full oh, name yes. should be Lukewarm That's Coffee. the first time, Tommy, someone's ever said that in my life. <laughs> I know, but I, it's, just, it's just one of those just great dad jokes that you can't just, you can't leave unsaid. Next will be like Luke this. Skywalker joke. Well, I, I'm partial <laughs> to the lukewarm coffee, but he's much more than that. He's scalding hot coffee, and you can find him uh, at Luke D Coffee on Twitter. Thanks a lot, Luke. Thank you very much. All right, and if you found this information interesting, here's something else for you guys to check out. Uh, The 2017 Index of Culture and Opportunity. Each year, Heritage gathers experts around the country to evaluate 31 factors needed to sustain freedom and opportunity in America. Online, you can explore charts tracking social and economic changes and read commentary explaining what trends in marriage, poverty, and other issues mean for our future. Go to heritage.org slash culture to take a look at the index. The cool thing about the index, um, and this is true of, of all of uh, all three of Heritage's indexes, but the 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 good the cool thing about Heritage's index of culture and opportunity is you can track these changes over time. It's um, right. it, 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 it's a look at trends in our culture. Our culture is changing; that cannot be denied. And maybe uh, within the statistics that this book offers are some of the reasons why ways that our families, our marriages, our societies, our our, our civil organizations look different today than than they did uh, a few years ago. And and if we can see those trends lines, we can see what's happening. That's, you know, I think a lot of us find this topic really interesting. J.D. Vance, he's the author of Hillbilly Elegy. That has been on the New York Times bestseller list for I don't know how many months, but it's a lot. Uh, Probably many of you listening have heard that. Um, Vance wrote uh, an introduction to this index of culture and opportunity. And so uh, I really think if you're interested in that book, if you're interested in in some of these culture changes, this is worth a look. Um, it's free online. It's really interesting. Um, give it a look when you get a chance. Uh, but anyways, uh, news of the day. News of the day. My what favorite is, segment. What is going on out there? Well, uh, we are, you know what? I feel a little hoodwinked by the Phelps versus the shark fiasco. It wasn't a real shark. And he wasn't even swimming with the shark, was he? He... No, he swam by himself. But even if he what, I mean, it was a fake. It was a digital shark. It was it's fake. <laughs> well, that's disappointing. Did you did you watch it? No, I just no, <laughs> no, I didn't. I didn't. I'm glad I didn't because it wasn't even real. All right. Well, for Shark Week, right? I think it was it was kicking off Shark Week. But, okay. You know, we get to rail against bad federal policies in this program, and I just wanted to rail against this because I would have watched it if it had been real. I would have. Well, they. They lost a viewer in Tommy Binion. So that's news of the day. That Phelps is the news first of the, day. the shark was a fiasco. All right. Well, we got what's going on on the Hill. We got Trump foreign policy and we got Michael Phelps versus the shark. By um, the way, I will race a real shark. If they want to make it a real shark, I'll do it. All right. You heard it here first. Tommy will race a shark. On that note... We'll go ahead and wrap up today's episode. Subscribe to iTunes, rate us, let us know how we can make the show better. And remember to tune in next week to keep up with the latest conservative news, policy, and insight from the steps of Capitol Hill.